Well, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 16. Isn't it amazing that we know him? Amen. Matthew 16. And we'll read from verse 28 into chapter 17 to verse 13. So Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, 28 to 17, 13. Verse 28. Truly I say unto you, there are some standing here which shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they did not know him, but have done unto him whatever they wanted. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke unto them, of John the Baptist. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we approach this sublime passage this morning, we give you praise that you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to man and to each one of us individually. And we thank you for showing us yourself. And we ask, Lord, that as we seek to understand this passage, that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see and understand. Help us to hear from you and realize that you speak to us today through your word and through your Son. Lord, give us ears to hear these deep and sublime things and that you would be glorified in our hearing of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have in my library at home a big fat book called Hard Sayings of the Bible. And that big fat book is actually made up of five different volumes. The first volume is Hard Sayings of Jesus. The second one is Hard Sayings of the Old Testament. The third, Hard Sayings of Paul. Then more Hard Sayings of the Old Testament and more Hard Sayings of the New Testament. The point is, is that the Bible is full of hard sayings, right? 
The Bible is full of hard sayings. The Bible that you hold in your hand is not an easy book, is it? And it doesn't always give easy answers to our questions. The Bible is not a G-rated children's book to be read casually, right? Or it's definitely not G-rated. But secondly, it's not the kind of book that you read, you can just read casually and pretend to understand it. Now, reading it casually is better than not reading it at all, certainly. But in the scriptures itself, God says for us to meditate on the word and to study the scriptures, right? And so that's the kind of book that the Bible is. It deals with God, truth, life, and the moral universe. Now, are these easy subjects or difficult subjects? They're deep and difficult subjects. So it's not necessarily a book full of easy sayings. And I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to read it, to meditate on it, to study it. Because the Bible, God gave the scriptures for us human beings. And it's understandable. It's written for our instruction, and God gave it to us for us to read and understand it. Some people like to think that uh, you can't understand the Bible. They say it's too difficult and everyone disagrees about the Bible, so there's just no way of understanding it. And they often say that, so it's really, we just need some inspired person to come and tell us what it means, like a prophet. But Brothers and sisters, God didn't give the scriptures just so that you realize you need a prophet to read it to you and explain it to you. The scriptures are the words of God's prophets. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, from a little child, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith that is in Jesus Christ. So he declares there, the scriptures are able to make you wise. Do you believe that? You believe the scriptures are able, they have the ability to make you wise. Now that verse contradicts those who say the scriptures aren't able to make you wise, you need something else. So the Bible, or the scriptures, is written for our instructions, and we must read it and meditate on it to understand these hard sayings. Now, in verse 28 of chapter 16, we have a hard saying of Jesus, right? Did you notice it was kind of difficult to understand? It's not an easy statement. In the Latin, this is called a crux interpretum. That means an interpretation crossroads. That means that people who read the Bible come to different conclusions about what this saying means, because it's a hard saying. Now, if we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this saying and what follows. The Apostle John doesn't. They all phrase the saying a little differently. Matthew here says, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mark says, you will see the kingdom of God come in power. And Luke simply says, there are some standing here that will see the kingdom of God. You'll notice that the kingdom of God and the Son of Man coming in his kingdom are indistinguishable. Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of God are the same. And so from this verse, we have various interpretations, and some of them are just quite frankly wacky, and some are more plausible. For example, there are some who believe that Jesus here meant the glorious eschatological, that means the glorious 
coming of the kingdom at the end, eschatological means at the end, some say that Jesus meant the glorious eschatological kingdom of God was coming in their lifetime, and he was wrong. That's one interpretation of this verse. They, Jesus said that there's some here that are going to see the glorious eschatological coming of the kingdom. He thought that was the case. It didn't happen. He was wrong. The problem with that interpretation is that it fails to consider everything else Jesus says about his coming and the coming of the kingdom. Because this isn't all Jesus says about the kingdom. Jesus talks a lot about the coming kingdom. And in many verses, he actually tells us that it's going to take a long time before it comes. And there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen before it comes. And we get the impression from his other verses that it isn't coming in their lifetime. So it's not right to say, well, Jesus was just plain wrong about when the kingdom was coming. Another interpretation of this verse is that Jesus meant the glorious eschatological kingdom was coming in their lifetime, and he was right. And what that means is, they say, that when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, that was the glorious eschatological coming of the kingdom of God. So they say, he, he was right. Some of them that day saw the Romans destroy Jerusalem, and that's the coming of the kingdom of God. The problem with that interpretation is it doesn't consider how Christ describes his coming in the scriptures. Because Jesus talks about what it's going to be like when he comes back. He talks about what that's going to look like, and it doesn't look like the Romans destroying Jerusalem, right? How many of you are familiar with the ways that Jesus talks about his coming? He talks about coming in the clouds with great power and glory with his angels and gathering the, the elect from the four corners, and on and on and on. Many verses we could look at, but we don't need to this morning. But there are two, those, those interpretations are more, I would say, on the wacky side. There are two main interpretations among Christians. Christians all around the world take this verse two different ways. And what they both agree on is that what Jesus explicitly is meaning here is not the glorious eschatological coming. That, that there is going to be a glorious coming of Christ in the future called the second coming, when Jesus returns. And Jesus wasn't necessarily referring to this. So the first interpretation goes like this. Jesus did not mean the glorious eschatological coming of the kingdom of God, but he meant the coming of the kingdom of God spiritually, in advance. So the spiritual breaking into the world of the kingdom of God. And, the, and Christians who believe this, and many do, think that Jesus was talking about his resurrection, his ascension, the day of Pentecost, and the preaching of the gospel, where Christ died, rose from the dead, ascended, and now the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense is being preached in the world and people are coming in. Make sense? Hesitant nods. <laughs> so... So I want to suggest that this is wrong for three reasons, even though I can sympathize with it for, and uh, agree with some of it. But it's wrong for three reasons. Number one, Jesus couldn't have been talking about the coming of the spiritual kingdom of God because that was already being seen, that was already happening in the ministry of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, now who do you guys cast out demons by? Because when the Pharisees said to him, he casts out demons 
by the spirit of the devil, or basically by the devil, because he's the devil, he casts out demons. He has authority over demons because he's their ruler. And Jesus says, well, if that's the case, who do you cast out demons by? Of course, they don't, right? <laughs> and Jesus says, however, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then what does he say? The kingdom of God has come among you. And so in the ministry of Jesus, we already see not the glorious eschatological kingdom among the people, but the kingdom of God at work spiritually among the people. And so it was already there. They would have all have seen it, have been seeing it already, the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom, if it was referring to that. Second reason I think that this is a wrong interpretation is that the language Jesus uses here, when he says you'll see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and if you look at the verse before that in verse 27, he describes it as coming in the glory of his Father with his angels and the kingdom of God coming in power. The language he uses here is the same language that he uses in all the places that he speaks about the glorious second coming. So when Jesus talks about the glorious second coming, he uses this same language, the Son of Man coming in power in his kingdom with the glory of his angels and his Father. And so I don't believe this is referring to the spiritual coming. But Jesus here is indeed making mention of a glorious coming. And the third reason is this. If Jesus was simply referring to the resurrection and the ascension and the day of Pentecost, then all of the disciples of Christ would have seen it, right? All of the disciples of Christ would have seen this coming. But here, notice in verse 28, he says, Truly I say unto you, there are some standing here that shall not taste death till they see. So he actually limits who's even going to see this. He limits it. So it can't be just Pentecost, because all the disciples were present on the day of Pentecost. And it can't be his glorious eschatological appearance, because the Bible says the whole world will see when Jesus comes back. Yet he seems to be referring to this glorious coming, and yet he limits it to some. And this brings us to the other main interpretation that Christians have when they look at verse 28, and it is this, that what Jesus meant is what follows this verse. And that is the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Jesus. And it's interesting and important to note that all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the transfiguration of Jesus next. In all the Gospels, Jesus makes this saying, and then the next thing that happens is his transfiguration on the mount. And we can see that this is intimately connected, the transfiguration is intimately connected with this saying. Notice in verse 1 that Matthew and Mark and Luke all say the same thing. Matthew says, after six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his brother, and brings them up into a mountain apart. He says it's six days after. And that's, a, that's an unusually precise description because usually you'll notice the gospel writers don't say after six days. They usually just say, after this, Jesus did something. Then he went over there. But it could be a month later. Or it could be a week later. We just don't know. But here is an unusually precise record of when this happened. After six days, they went 
up on the mount. And this connects the two passages closely. You'll also notice that Jesus does not take all of his disciples up onto the mount. He takes Peter, James, and John. And I want to suggest to you that that is the sum that he was talking about. When Jesus said, there are some here that will see the Son of Man come in power, he was thinking of these three. R.T. France writes this about the transfiguration. This is something to consider. Nothing like it occurs elsewhere in the Gospels. Is there any other place in the Gospels where Jesus is transfigured and shines as bright as the sun? Can you think of another place? France points out, not even in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Is there anything like this? Even when Jesus raises from the dead, he's not shining like the sun, is he? And he says, it is a brief glimpse behind the scenes. The only thing that is similar to this in our New Testament is the vision of the King of Kings in the book of Revelation and the second coming, right? The only thing that is even similar to this, what happens to Jesus on the mount. So let's examine this now, what happens, and see how it relates to verse 28. All three of the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that when Jesus took, Matt, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John apart into a high mountain, when they were alone, that he was transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorphos. He was literally changed in form. That's what metamorphos means. Changed in form. So the form of Jesus was altered and changed. Not just his clothes, but his body. It wasn't just his clothes that became white. It was his body. They all say this, or here's what Matthew says. Jesus' face shone as the sun. Can you imagine? Can you imagine his face shining like the sun? Okay? Let me ask you, where's that light source coming from? That's a lot of light, right? And we think about the sun, that's pretty bright. No one can really just stare at the sun without some kind of dark glasses on. Otherwise, you'll be, your, your eyes will be shut. You'll, you'll wince and look away. It's so bright. And yet, the, what's causing the light from the sun is all this gas burning, all this energy. And yet, Jesus' face is now shining as bright as the sun. Where is the source of this light? Does this remind you of anything? What's that? Moses? In a sense, certainly because his face shone. But his face shone because he was in the presence of the Lord. In a sense, he was reflecting the, the glory of God. But this, I think, reminds me... Where does it remind you where light comes from? Genesis. An odd source. Genesis. Where God says, let there be light, and there was light, and yet there was no sun, there was no stars, there was nothing. There was just light coming from God. Light without a material source. And in the book of Genesis, we realize that God put the stars and the sun in the sky after he created light to simply govern the light that he had created. And you realize, brothers and sisters, that all the light in this world, in this material world, is simply being borrowed from God, the source of light. The sun is not the ultimate source of light, according to the scriptures. The stars 
the lights above us in this room are not the ultimate source of light, but God himself is the ultimate source of light. And here we see Jesus, the Son of God, shining as bright as the sun without any material source. That's amazing. Just be amazed and wonder at the transfiguration. Mark tells us this, Jesus' clothes became whiter than snow. So not only did his body change, his clothes too. And he was wearing clothes as white as snow. And Mark even goes so far as to say this, his clothes were whiter than anything man could whiten. So if you were to travel the whole world over looking for the most skilled uh, bleacher, <laughs> you know, if you asked around, who can make things white? Go to Sherwin-Williams, ask for the whitest paint they have. Because I really want to have a white shirt. And I need it to be as white as Jesus' shirt was on the Transfiguration. <laughs> the, the scriptures declare, you could not... If you spent all your money and energy and traveled the whole world, you could not get a shirt as white as the shirt that Jesus had. And Jesus had it in a split second. What we realize here, brothers and sisters, is that our white, man's white, compared to heaven's white, is something like yellow, right? And what we think is white really isn't white. You see, a, you see a teaching here that what man esteems, God doesn't esteem because God knows what the real thing is. The clothes that are as white as snow, that language sounds a lot like in Isaiah chapter 1 where he said, though your sin be as scarlet, it'll be as white as snow. And if we think about our righteousness compared to God's righteousness, we must think of it like this, right? That when we look at someone and we say, oh, they are such a good person, right? Have you ever, you ever thought of someone as a really good person? And you think, they're just so good. I wish I was as good as they are. The world thinks of many, many people are good. They think of people like Mother Teresa and Gandhi. Or some people think uh, that Jesus was just a good teacher. They think these people are good. Or some people think they are good. I'm an obedient person. I'm a really loving person. You ask most people on the streets, are you a good person? Yes. Why? I love asking that next question, why? Because you notice they kind of stumble around. They haven't really thought about why they're good. They just think they're good. Why, why do you think you're a good person? And then they stumble at it. Well, uh, because I, you know, I am a nice guy. Don't murder anybody. They think that that's white. They think that that's righteous. Until they see what true righteousness is. Heavenly righteousness makes human righteousness look yellow or brown or black, right? This is what Isaiah saw. The prophet, when he saw God, he says, woe is me. I'm toast and all my people are toast. There's not a righteous person among us. No one compares to the Lord. When, when we die and stand before God, we're going to be struck by how unrighteous we are. And all our righteousness is our filthy rags. And what we thought was white wasn't really white at all. And in the light of his whiteness and in the light of his righteousness, we'll be abased, brothers and sisters. And we'll, be, we'll, we'll think ourselves fools 
for thinking we were good. And those who don't believe in Christ will curse the day that they thought white was white when it really wasn't. And they'll wish that they had believed the scriptures when it said, there is none righteous, no, not one. And only through Christ can you be righteous. On top of that, Moses and Elijah appear on the mound. Now, wouldn't that be amazing to see? Can you imagine being Peter, James, and John? Not only are you seeing Jesus transfigured, now you're seeing Moses and Elijah on the mountain talking with Jesus. You remember when Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living? Here's a, here's a, a proof and a statement that Moses and Elijah are not gone just because they're dead. Here they are. When you die, don't think that you're gone. Don't think that you're annihilated. God is not the God of the dead. Moses and Elijah are standing there. I'm sure Peter, James, and John were amazed. Anyone, any one of us would be amazed to see them. I believe that Moses and Elijah, many scholars believe this too, represent the law and the prophets. When you think of the word law, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Moses. And interestingly enough, when you think of the word prophet, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Elijah. Because Isaiah and Jeremiah are kind of duking it out for superiority, right? But you somehow, you think of Elijah. He's sort of your typical prophet. And it's interesting that they are there, the law and the prophets now, standing with Jesus speaking with him. And the, the Gospel of Luke tells us exactly what they were talking to him about. They weren't just standing there saying, hey, how's it going? Good. What's up? Not much. Luke tells us they're talking to Jesus about his death. Think about that. Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain this is now close to the death of Jesus, close to the time he'll die, and they're discussing his death with him. It was like Moses and Elijah are already on the inside about this. They already know about this. What we see here is that the death of Jesus is not incompatible with the Old Testament. The death of the Messiah is not incompatible with the scriptures of the Old Testament. In fact, the law and the prophets all point to Jesus and specifically to his death. So you've got to see that here in Matthew, we have a concentrated focus upon the death of Jesus. In the last chapter, Jesus has just begun to talk about his death. Of course, Peter rebukes him. And then immediately we have the transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah are now talking about his death. And immediately after the transfiguration, in verse 12, in verse 22 and 23, and on and on and on, Jesus continues to talk about his death. Now the death of Christ is the focus. Because this is the purpose of the Messiah's coming. This is the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. And yet Peter still seems to not get it. In Luke, we actually get to understand a bit more of why Peter said what he said. Okay? You ever wonder why Peter said this? Well, the gospel writers all say he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> kind of just spoke it without thinking. Thoughtless words. Don't impress God. 
But it's actually when, when Peter saw, according to Luke, when Peter saw Moses and Elijah leaving, he said this. So basically he was saying, hold on, stay. This is good. He pipes up and says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It's great that Moses and Elijah are here with you, Jesus, and we're here too. This is really great. <laughs> and it's interesting, the word good is not the, the Greek word agathos, which means morally good. It's the Greek word kalos, which means beautiful. So Peter is not saying, this is a righteous thing for us to be here. This is a morally good thing. This is just a great thing. This is just awesome. This is just beautiful being here. Stay. Let's, let's make three tents here for you guys to live in. <laughs> Wacky. What we see here, brothers and sisters, is that what we think is beautiful or great isn't always right. The most important concern ought to be righteousness. The most important concern needs to be the moral concern. Here, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about his death. Why is Jesus coming to die? For our sins. Because in order for us to have a relationship with God, we must be right with God. We can't be right with God any other way. And Peter here is again thoughtlessly suggesting, why don't we just stay here? The moral concern is being ignored for what he thinks is great or beautiful. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived in religion by what appears great. And let's, be, let's give Peter some credit. Certainly, if anything is great, it would be Moses, Jesus, and Elijah hanging out on the mountain, right? So, but let's not be fooled by what really is cool and great in religion for what is, but what ignores the moral concern. A lot of religions completely ignore, ignore the righteousness of God and the moral concern of man. They ignore the sin problem of man, and they pr promote something that sure looks great. As Peter is saying this, God comes to silence him. The, she the Shekinah glory of God. In the Old Testament, God would appear in a cloud and speak out of it. And here a cloud that's full of light overshadows them. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Shut up and listen to Him. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, He didn't say shut up. <laughs> the focus is on Christ, not Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are pointing to Him. God doesn't say, listen to them, although we should listen to them. Jesus says, if you really listened and believed in Moses, you would believe in me. But the, the, now, when God says, listen to him, he's speaking about the ultimate end. The ultimate goal here is for you to listen to Christ, the Son. Moses and Elijah are not the ends in themselves. They are both standing there discussing with Jesus his death. That is the end. And listening to Christ and understanding his death is the end. Christ is the end, the beloved Son of God, through whom and Him alone we know the Father, and in whom God is well pleased. Without Christ being the end, 
We don't know the Father. We don't know God. If Christ is just another Moses or Elijah, brothers and sisters, we have absolutely nothing. We will remain in ignorance of God and in our sins. Listen to Him. That's something that every single one of us this morning can take to heart. Listen to Him. Listen to Him when He talks about His death. Don't teach Jesus. Don't tell Jesus what He should be. Listen to Him. The disciples needed help understanding what it was all about. Turn with me to Luke briefly. Luke chapter 9. I want you to notice a small detail here. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Starting at verse 30. Luke 9, 30. Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in what? Glory. So look, Jesus is not the only one who's transfigured here. In the sense, Moses and Elijah are transfigured also. They appear in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah now are appearing in glory. And look at verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw Christ's glory. So here we have a statement that what is going on on the Mount of Transfiguration is glory. We're seeing the glory of Christ. We're seeing the glory of the saints with Christ. This is what Peter and James saw when they saw his glory. Remember in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus said, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his saints and with his angels. And now turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, because this event was so profound that Peter never forgot it, and in his old age he wrote about it. 2 Peter is written in Peter's old age. Peter says in 2 Peter, I'm, I'm about to go. I'm about to die. And yet, he talks about the transfiguration. In 2 Peter 1, 16 and 17, and I want you to notice how Peter describes the transfiguration. 2 Peter 1, 16 and 17. Verse 16. He says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you what? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, so when we told you about the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we weren't telling you cunningly devised fables because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So now he's saying, we saw it with our very own eyes, his power and his coming. It was his majesty, his kingly glory that we saw. 4, verse 17 goes on. The sentence is not over. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, this is the voice which came from heaven that we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So Peter is saying that when we were on the holy mount, 
We saw the majesty of God, uh, the Son. We saw His power and His what? His coming. So Peter declares, we saw the coming of the Lord. We saw the power of the Son of God. We saw the King of kings in His glory. In essence, this is what they saw. They saw in advance the glory of the kingdom of God and the power of the Son of God. Charles Erdman says this, they saw a foregleam of the glory. Lewis Schaefer says, a preview of the coming kingdom on earth. J.C. Ryle wrote, they saw a striking pattern of the glory in which Christ and his people will appear when he comes the second time. F.F. Bruce writes, the three disciples who witnessed the transfiguration had a vision of the Son of Man vindicated and glorified. They saw in graphic anticipation the fulfillment of his words about the powerful advent of the kingdom of God. I want to suggest to you that like the prophets of old who saw ahead the thing that was going to happen, Peter, James, and John saw the glorious eschatological coming in advance. They weren't actually seeing the coming happen, but they saw Christ in his glorified kingly glory that will come one day when he comes a second time. You remember in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 43, Jesus says, then shall the righteous, when he comes, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Isn't that amazing? When the son of man shall come, and send forth his angels, which is what we're waiting for, which all Christians are waiting for. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. We're seeing Jesus and Moses and Elijah doing that very thing, shining forth as the sun because they are righteous. So brothers and sisters, they saw the kingdom of God and the glory of the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. And why? The transfiguration of Jesus was given to help them believe in the glory of Christ in the face of his inglorious death. You see, the disciples were expecting Christ to appear in his glorious kingdom. And when Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem and die, Peter was like, no, right? And the disciples didn't understand. But this was given to help them see that the death of Christ is not because Christ is a failure. It's not because Christ is weak. It's not because he's not glorious. It's not because he can't kick butt. The death of Christ is not because of these things that he must die. But it's because of the moral concern. It's because of the unrighteousness of men. It's because of his great love for sinners. The transfiguration shows us this. It affirms them that yes, Christ is glorious. Yes, he will indeed come in glory. Jesus is saying, yes, I am coming in glory. You will see this. Yes, Moses and Elijah are still here. Yes, it's all going to happen as you think it's going to happen. But my death is not because I'm a failure or weak or because this isn't going to happen. My death is because of the moral concern and I love you. And you need this. 
And think about it, brothers and sisters. Think of the death of Christ now this way. This Son of God in his glory, this is the one who died for you. Think about it. When you think of Jesus dying for you, is it just some human carpenter man that died for you? Or is it the Son of God, the glorious, righteous one who died for you? The one on the cross, the nails went through his flesh. But don't just see the torn flesh. Do you not see the radiant flesh being hung on the cross for our sins? And the casting of the, of the garments, of his white garments, which no man could see, but the Father could see. The one who died with you, or for you, was the sinless, righteous, glorious, amazing, majestic Son of God, who had no sin who was not crucified because he was a sinner, but because we, you, are a sinner. And if this one had not have died for you, you would perish. Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in punishment for sin? Brothers and sisters, if we say there's no such thing as hell and there's no such thing as punishment for sin, then why does this glorious God need to die for us? Why does this sinless one need to take our place on the cross? He came to die, not because he was weak, but because that's the only way for you to be saved, and he loves you. God loves you. The cross is the declaration that the mighty God loves you. The God who has amazing non-material light bursting out of his face, who has no sin and has eternal life with himself, died. Isn't that amazing? He tasted that death. He drank the bitter cup. He took all the ugliness of our sin that we commit every day. He took that so that we might live with him in glory. Isn't it amazing that through the death of Christ, you who believe will be glorified together with him? Now, isn't that amazing? What does the scripture say? You are dead with him, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Just like Christ, the glorious one, walked around and his glory was hidden. So we as believers who are righteous through faith, if you were to look at us, we look like nothing special. When God looks at you, however, he sees you as something very special. When God looks at you, he sees you as glorious and beautiful and blameless. His bride, without spot or blemish. And it's all because of the blood of Christ that was shed for you. It's all because his glory has been given to you and you're a sharer in it. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear in glory, then you also shall appear together with him. Isn't that amazing? That we as believers one day in the future, however long it will take before Jesus comes back, when he comes back in the future, those who believe will be like Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. With the Lord, probably talking about his death, except that it happened, right? and full of joy and wonder that we who deserve damnation are now glorified together with him without spot or blemish. Invited in to partake of his splendor. It just should blow our minds, brothers and sisters. If it doesn't, you're not seeing it. What you deserve versus what you've received through his grace. And through it all, we see his amazing love. And now lastly, before we close, in Matthew 17, Jesus tells, us, tells the disciples in verse 9, 
not to tell anyone of the vision until after the resurrection. For none are ready to hear this, as we've already seen in Matthew, where Jesus says, tell no one I'm, I'm the Christ, tell no one I'm, I was transfigured, because men won't understand. Men don't understand the moral concern. Men don't understand the cross. Let me first die and be raised, and then you go into all the world and preach. And you preach righteousness through faith and not righteousness by obedience to the law, which will bring none to salvation. And now the disciples are thoroughly confused, and they ask Jesus a question. Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? So they're trying to piece it all together. Okay, so you've got to die. I'm starting to see this. And, uh, I mean, you keep telling me this, but I just saw Elijah on the mount. And, I mean, where does he fit in with all this? Because the scribes, Jesus, tell us that Elijah has to first come. And Jesus, essentially, agrees with the scribes. He says, yes, they're right. They got it. The scriptures were given for their understanding, and they got it. Elijah does come first. And in their teaching, Elijah restores all things. And that's correct. So verse 12 is not a statement of, or verse 11, when Jesus says, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things, he doesn't mean a future statement. Jesus is not saying this is now future. He's just agreeing with the scribes, yes. In the context of the coming of the Messiah, Elijah must come first and restore all things. But though he agrees with their order, he completely disagrees with their conception because he goes on to say, yes, Elijah must come first and restore all things, but when he came, I say unto you, Elijah's come already, and they didn't even know him. So they got the order right, but that doesn't do you much good, does it? You see, knowing the order of things from the Bible does you no good if you don't understand what it's all about. You can believe that Jesus is the Christ. You can believe John the Baptist was his forerunner. You can believe that Jesus is coming a second time, and before Jesus comes, there's going to be a great tribulation. You can understand that the resurrection is going to take place after Jesus uh, returns in glory. You can understand all that, and if you don't understand the cross, it profits you nothing. So, Elijah does come first. It was John, and he restores all things. What does this mean, that he restores all things? The Greek word here, it's kind of a long and difficult one, apokatastasai, restore. And Jesus is actually basically just quoting straight out of the prophet Malachi. And the prophet Malachi, in Malachi 4, verse 6, uses that very word, restore. Apokatastasai in the Septuagint. And what Malachi says there is that the Lord will send before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah, to restore what? See, we can't just take the word restore and apply it to everything. He's not going to come and restore your stolen bicycle. <clears throat> he's going to restore, Malachi says, he's going to restore the hearts. Malachi says this, in Malachi 4.6, Elijah's coming to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and of the children to the fathers. So when Jesus says Elijah comes and restores all things, we're not to think he comes and restores all things in the sense of fixing the whole world. That's Jesus' job. But restores the hearts. The fathers refer to the patriarchs and the children refer to their progeny. And what he's saying is, Elijah's coming and his purpose is to put the heart of the patriarchs into the children. Not, it's not about 
turning fathers to their children as if family relationships were bad in those days. And John's, John just came to be a, a counselor, a family counselor. Okay? We don't have any record of John talking about family counseling. But he's taking the heart of the fathers and restoring them into their children. In Luke, the, the angel tells Zechariah that John is going to take the heart of the fathers and restore it to the children. And what that means is the children are going to be restored to the wisdom of the just. The wisdom of the righteous. The patriarchs were righteous. Jesus said they were righteous, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will sit down in the kingdom of God. But their children are not like the patriarchs. The children are not wise. The children don't have the heart of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is that heart? It's the heart that believes God. The heart that listens to God. The heart that hears God's word when God says, you are a sinner. The heart that hears that doesn't say, no, I'm not. Or yes, I am. But what that means is, is I'm not really that bad. God declares none are righteous. The heart of the patriarch says, I believe. God gives his promise, whoever believes in my son will not perish but have everlasting life. The patriarchs trust in the promise of God, right? The patriarchs aren't trusting in their own righteousness. The patriarchs are trusting in the Messiah. And unfortunately, Jesus' generation and John the Baptist's generation did not have the heart of the patriarchs. And John the Baptist came and preached metanoia, changing your mind to believe God and the prophets and the law and to look forward to the coming of Christ. And truly there were those who believed. But, as Jesus says here, Elijah came, the one that they knew was coming first. And they didn't know him, and they killed him. And likewise, they will kill me. So the question that we need to ask ourselves in closing this morning is do you have the heart of the patriarchs? Or to put it another way is do you believe God when he tells you that you are a sinner? When he tells you what righteousness is? When he shows you whiteness? And he says, this is what goodness is. This is what righteousness is. It means to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself all the time, never sinning. To be perfectly good. To be perfectly loving. To be perfectly sinless. This is what righteousness is. This is what I require. And you're not that. And you won't be that through your own efforts, because you're not a good person. Because like everybody else, your imaginations are evil. You're selfish. You don't love me, and you don't love your neighbor. But God says, I love you. I love you. I am the one who loves. And I sent my son into the world to die for your sins, to take the penalty you deserve, so you don't have to. And just trust me, and I'll make your scarlet stain as white as snow. You will be given eternal life.
Are you listening, brothers and sisters? Do you believe in Christ? Do you realize that Christ isn't just here to teach us some nice things and leave, but that he came to die, that he must die for our moral dilemma? And do you also believe that he's coming again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in great power and glory? And on that day, there will be a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. And people are going to look different on that day. The righteous are going to look righteous because of Christ. And the unrighteous are going to look unrighteous because they don't have him. If you haven't believed in his grace and his love revealed in Christ, this morning I want to invite you to simply trust in the truth. Realize you're a sinner. Realize that you're going to die. Realize that you have no hope apart from him and put your faith in him. If you don't, you won't have glory but wrath. Be instructed by the scriptures this morning. But for you who do believe, I want to just encourage you in the love of God and that when he appears a second time in glory, as the scripture says, you shall appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us sinners. We have no righteousness, as we sang today, of our own. No hope or peace that comes from us. And Lord, as we, as we think about your glory, we realize that we don't deserve glory, but we deserve your wrath. God, cause us to be in awe of the fact that you, the glorious one, died for our sins. Help us to see that the man on the cross is the glorious son of God who died so that we could partake in his glory. We praise you this morning and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.